This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up. One of the main reasons I decided to center this second season of the Art Curious podcast around art and World War II is that there are so many different stories that we can tell about how art and war intersect, especially, and most critically, during this war to end all wars. As I discussed in episode number 21, the first in this season, it may seem on the surface that there aren't many direct correlations between World War II and the arts. But in fact, there were many very tangible connections. And you can even say that there were many physical connections between the two. Thousands of paintings, sculptures, drawings, and prints, once safely ensconced in homes or collections, were suddenly uprooted at the whim of one man, with one very particular museum in mind for them. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, or lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or even just more fun than you can imagine. And today, we're digging into the story behind one of the most significant museums never built, Hitler's Führer Museum. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. If you've just joined us for the second season of the Art Curious podcast, welcome, first and foremost. And next, I would also recommend that you pause this episode and go back and listen to the second in this season, number 22, about Adolf Hitler's artistic aspirations in his youth. Having that information at your disposal will be helpful in understanding why, perhaps, the concept of his Führer Museum, or Leaders Museum, was so important to him. But it's also probably enough to know these things about Hitler that the arts, and visual art in particular, had always resonated with him, as did his romantic vision of the artist's lifestyle. But his failure to enter the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna in the early 20th century crushed his dreams of becoming a world-famous creator. If he couldn't be an artist, though, he could still find another connection in the arts by becoming a voracious collector. And once Hitler began amassing money after the First World War, he eagerly sought out to become just that. In terms of personal taste, Hitler's collection preferences were particularly Germanic, specifically homing in on 19th century landscapes and peasant-centered scenes from southern Germany, especially Munich and its surroundings. He was also drawn to the heroism and strength of classical Greco-Roman design and loved the Romantics as well as the German realists, being specifically keen on works by artists like Hans Thoma, Adolf von Menzel, and Arnold Bocklin. What he didn't like was anything modern and really, really didn't like anything with overt religious overtones either. 
but from most accounts, it looks like he was attempting to get beyond his own personal preferences and looking far ahead into the future, to his legacy. According to author Frederick Spotts in his 2002 book, Hitler and the Power of Aesthetics, it seems to be that the soon-to-be dictator had already been dreaming of putting together a so-called German National Gallery in Berlin, and had even casted the role of museum director in his mind. And that museum director was to be Hitler himself. By 1925, he was already sketching structures in his notebooks, specifically dreaming up a two-winged building featuring a total of 60 rooms for the display of art, and he even delineated where his favorite artists and paintings would be located in those rooms. Developing his plan for a few years later, however, brought him to an interesting dilemma. Berlin, by that point, was already known as a cultural hotspot, having five museums in the city center beginning in the 1830s and progressing over the following century. Museum Island, as it would become known, was already jam-packed with artistic treasures, including the Alta National Gallery, which had already housed a trove of 19th-century masterworks. Hitler's German National Gallery might have ended up seeming a little redundant in that context. But there was another reason, too. By 1933, Adolf Hitler had been appointed chancellor, and he was dedicated to a single-minded intention to make Germany both a one-political-party country and the greatest country in the world. And as its leader, he assumed that that would make him the greatest person in the world. Right? With that ego-stroking concept in mind, Hitler refocused the geography of his German National Gallery entirely back towards himself, meaning that his hometown of Linz, Austria, now seemed the perfect place to celebrate his artistic and political greatness. This connection proved to be even easier to make after the Anschluss, or the annexation of Austria in 1938, where Linz, like the rest of the country, fell under German control. That same year, though, the real concept and direction of Hitler's Grand Museum came into place clearly and concisely. He undertook an official state visit to Italy, specifically to Rome, Florence, and finally to Naples. He performed the requisite duty of any good tourist and was treated to sightseeing tours in each location, and was treated to special banquets and honors by Mussolini and King Vittorio Emanuele. As even visitors to Italy today will know, the art to be found there is really, truly astounding. And in 1938, Hitler felt the same way. And yet, his thoughts were also tinged with not a little bit of jealousy. It was at this time that he decided that his gallery wouldn't just be any other gallery, and certainly not just a Germanic one. Instead, the Lance Gallery would become the greatest art museum in Europe. Nay, the greatest art museum in the world. According to Frederick Spotts, Hitler consistently and unfailingly spoke of his dream, which was referred to both as the Lance Museum and as the Führer Museum, or Leaders Museum, by both Hitler and his closest advisors. His secretary noted that it was a frequent subject of conversation, not only among the highest-ranking officials, but also for visitors who attended his regular afternoon teas. And he personally thought of every detail even down to how much space was to be found between paintings in any given gallery. Hitler even designed his own plans for the building, which he then handed over to architect Roderick Fick to bring to full fruition. By 1940, when Fick was assigned to the project, Hitler had expanded his original drawings from a two-winged structure to a four-winged one in order to house double the artwork. Remember, it was no longer supposed to be the greatest museum in the German Empire, 
but in the entire world. And if the collection of European art began to grow even more, both Fick and Hitler brainstormed ways to add additional structures within Lenz to house even more works of art. Indeed, the Führer Museum was the most important part of Hitler's concept for his renovated hometown, but it wasn't the only one. Lenz was to become this cultural center of the continent, not only housing the famed art museum, but also, and I quote, a new city hall, new Nazi party headquarters, a new railway station, a stadium, a community hall, a technical university, an institute of metallurgy, a planetarium, a suspension bridge, and two new towers, one of them with a carillon, and a mausoleum for Hitler's parents, unquote. And honestly, that's not even all. Those are just the highlights. Okay now, century-old spoiler alert. None of these things was actually ever built, with the exception of one. The Nibelungen Bridge over the Danube River is still in existence today. Hitler's insistence on being the mastermind of the greatest art collection in all the world meant that he had to get his hands on the greatest artwork in all the world, which to him, naturally, meant only Western or Eurocentric artworks. The original core of the permanent collection of the Führer Museum was meant to be Hitler's own personal collection, his beloved stores of 19th century German painting. But that wouldn't go very far to establishing such a grand amassment of works. And Hitler himself was far too busy to go about sourcing whatever was available on the art market. He commanded a lawyer named Heinrich Heim to make trips to Italy and to France, then the art capitals of Europe, in order to do some shopping for him. Heim himself had some expertise and familiarity with fine paintings, prints, and drawings, so he wasn't an entirely random pick. He was armed with a considerable amount of money from three of Hitler's financial endeavors, the sales of his autobiography, Mein Kampf, real estate ventures, and from the royalties he received after allowing his visage to be used on postage stamps. This totaled nearly 100 million Deutschmarks, which allowed Heim to make some pretty significant purchases. The problem here is that this only really limited Heim, and therefore Hitler, to works that were already available for sale. So what do you do when you really want the best in the world, but you can't actually buy it? I think you probably already know the answer. And that's coming up next, right after this break. Do you want to help support the show and keep it going? Not only can you donate to us on our website, but you can also benefit from a very special offer. For listeners of the Art Curious Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their awesome service. Two books that are currently fascinating me are Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History, in that order, by Bridget Quinn, and The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals, and Breakthroughs in Modern Art, by Sebastian Smee. You'll find these, as well as the biggest bestsellers like Turtles All the Way Down by John Green or What Happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton, and thousands more. And for every free trial, the Art Curious Podcast gets a little kickback, which is so incredibly appreciated and goes a long way to keep us going. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash artcurious. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your free audiobook. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. Even while Adolf Hitler terrorized the world in the midst of World War II towards his goal of creating a unified and quote-unquote purified German Empire, he was equally engaged in another, more private goal, the establishment of the greatest art museum in the world, the Führer Museum, which would simultaneously act to glorify him as a leader. But there was an issue of adding the world's best works to his collection. There was that teeny, tiny, niggling problem of the works belonging to other individuals and institutions. Hitler had a plan for this. As part of the invasion and annexation of various European countries in the midst of World War II, Hitler declared viciously that any artwork seized in the process, whether from museums or private collections, would become part of his personal collection, with the end goal of the very best items being placed on display at the Führer Museum. These holdings were known as the Führer Reserve and allowed Hitler that continued personal control over his dream project. Items of lesser value that were seized along the way could end up in the homes or offices of other officials or in smaller institutions, but the creation of the Führer Reserve assured Hitler would get first pick. Just as with Hitler's assertion that Heinrich Heim would personally handle any art purchases, Hitler also needed someone to manage the seizure of artworks as well. So in June of 1939, he formed the Sonderaufstrag Lands, or the Lands Special Commission, and named Dr. Hans Posse as the commissioner. On June 26th, Hitler signed an official decree with his intentions, writing, quote, I commissioned Dr. Hans Posse, the director of the Dresden Gallery, to build up the new museum for Lands. All party and state services are ordered to assist Dr. Posse in fulfillment of his mission, unquote. Hans Posse's own artistic specialties in the more than 20 years he spent as the director of Dresden's art gallery focused on French, Italian, and Dutch paintings, with additional interest in early German works as well. To Hitler, this was ideal, particularly since he himself wasn't a collector of those fields of work and had little knowledge of them. He could then trust that Posse would be able to build up the collections of the Lance Museum with the assistance of various other scholars including ethically dubious art dealers, additional painting and print curators, experts in arms and armor, in coins, and even a librarian and a curator of books. Though it probably doesn't need to be made explicit, I'm going to say it anyway. Much of what Hans Posse did, under Hitler's demands, was allow the outright theft of precious works of art from anyone that any SS officer came across. And those officers could really forcibly steal any item they wanted and do it in any way necessary. This included killing the rightful owner of the artwork or item. Hitler declared the seizure of any quote-unquote ownerless works of art. But what exactly constituted an ownerless work could really be justified in any number of ways, including whether or not an officer considered someone worthy of even owning a work of art. In the case of Jewish individuals, this was particularly common as they would be swept aside to concentration camps 
or worse, while their heirlooms were raided and the Fuhrer Reserve grew considerably and proportionately. As the war progressed, Possa began noticing that the Lance collection was becoming increasingly valuable, with masterworks by Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Tintoretto, Hans Holbein, Anthony van Dyck, and Rembrandt, just as a few examples of the spoils of war from Poland, Austria, the Netherlands, Czechoslovakia, and elsewhere. Interestingly, the belief about the predominance of stolen versus purchased works in the Lance repositories is still a debated topic today something which came as a bit of a surprise to me when I started researching this episode. Some experts have noted that only about 12 to 15 percent of the Lance works were stolen or received during a so-called forced sale. But others have argued that even works that were actually outright purchased by Palsa and his team were essentially looted by false pretenses, because dealers in occupied countries were paid for any sales in Reichsmarks, which were practically worthless due to massive inflation, especially at the end stages of World War II. In addition, Hitler's art crew wheeled and dealed hard when it came to art sales. Their offers were bargain basement at best. As Gerald Alders, a Dutch historian, noted, quote, If Hitler's or Goering's art agents stood on your doorstep and offered you $10,000 for a painting instead of $100,000 that it was actually worth— it was pretty hard to refuse, unquote. Alders's mention of Goering brings up another interesting and confusing facet in the business of Hitler's art collection. Hermann Goering, one of the top leaders of the Nazi party and the second most powerful man in Germany under Hitler, frequently enacted directives to the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, a mouthful, thankfully abbreviated to ERR, or the organization dedicated to the appropriation of cultural property and headed by Alfred Rosenberg, the prime Nazi philosopher. Fundamentally, visual art would fall under the umbrella of cultural property. So even without direct link to Passa and his acquisitions, Rosenberg was gaining art for Hitler through the ERR too. Rosenberg himself actually had little interest in cultural property as anything other than this idea or symbol. But Hermann Goring, he did. He liked that stuff. All accounts note that Hermann Goering's interest in art, tapestries, jewels, furs, and fine housewares was nearly as unquenchable as Adolf Hitler's. And so, under the auspices of the ERR, thousands of items ended up in Goering's own coffers. As writer Robert Edsel reported, this sometimes would put Goering in a little bit of a bind, because his own wants could come into conflict with those of Hitler's. Goering, though, he was smart about it, and he knew that if Hitler wanted a specific sculpture, Hitler better well have it, and so Goering would not hesitate to step down. He'd even sweeten the deal on occasion to further appease the Fuhrer, offering presents from his own collection in the name of the Lands Museum. A good example of this was the Vermeer painting The Astronomer, which was confiscated from the Rothschild collection in France, and which subsequently became Hitler's very favorite among all of the Lands' destined properties. All the while, Hans Passe was at work as the director of Hitler's top-secret Führer Museum, and he toiled in this position for more than three years, until his death from cancer in December of 1942. And in that three years, he brought together more than 2,500 individual works of art, specifically for the Führer Museum. Hans Passe's death didn't at all slow down Hitler's vast dreams for Lanz as the cultural capital of the world. Just three months later, in early March of 1943, Hermann Voss, an art historian and museum director in Berlin, took over as the special commissioner for the Lanz project. 
Frederick Spotts notes in his book that this initially appeared to be a rather strange appointment on Hitler's part, as Voss was someone who was not only highly friendly with German Jews, but was also fairly anti-Nazi. As with Hans Posse before him, he was also a scholar of French, Italian, and German painting. So Spotts suggests that Hitler ultimately cared more about Voss's knowledge than his political leanings and just hired him anyway. If that's true, then it is yet another really revealing factor about how much art truly mattered to Hitler. So much that he was able to somehow turn a blind eye toward a man who would otherwise be considered his political enemy. The acquisitions for the land's cultural institutions were ongoing throughout the war. Posse and Voss after him made a habit of presenting works of art to Hitler himself for special occasions, especially for Hitler's own birthday which was a mandated state holiday ever since his 50th birthday in 1939. When too many purchases, and I'm using that word as an air quotes, naturally, when too many purchases were made to easily bring them all to Hitler, the Lance team created photo albums documenting the museum's future assets, and those albums would become presents in and of themselves, offered to the leader on his birthday and on Christmas through the end of 1944. In total, about 30 of these volumes actually existed, but only 19 of them have been located today. The remaining albums may just be lingering out there in some musty attic, or perhaps they were destroyed or are simply lost from the ravages of war. Towards the end of World War II, something peculiar happened. Hitler and his compatriots began slowly realizing that they were on the losing side, and that defeat was coming, surely and swiftly. So in the last few months of the war, Hitler began dwelling even more on his obsession with his hometown, as it symbolized everything he wanted in one clean package. Fame, glory, history, culture, purity. In response to his faltering dreams, he pestered those in charge of the various Lance projects to put together a large-scale model of the entire cultural complex. On February 9, 1945, it was finally declared ready for his review. And Hitler, along with close advisors and his official photographer who recorded the event, studied the miniature city in detail. As Ian Kershaw wrote in his book, Hitler, 1936-1945, Nemesis, quote, Bent over the model, Hitler viewed it from all angles and in various kinds of lighting. He asked for a seat. He checked the proportions of the different buildings. He asked about the details of the bridges. He studied the model for a long time, apparently lost in thought. Looking down on the model of a city which he knew would never be built, Hitler could fall into reverie, revisiting the fantasies of his youth, where he could dream about rebuilding lands. Adolf Hitler committed suicide on April 30, 1945, and in the wake of his death and the Allies' victory, it was nearly impossible to determine the full amount of the works of art that were seized and set aside specifically for the Führer Museum in Lens. However, Frederick Spotts and other historians have estimated that somewhere between 7,000 to 8,500 works of art were probable additions. Of course, we're lucky that the Axis powers lost the war and weren't able to increase this number of potential acquisitions. But it's also good to put it in context. Let's take France's Louvre Museum as an example, as it's typically listed as the largest museum in the world by both square footage and by collection size. Today, the Louvre owns approximately 380,000 objects and displays about 35,000 works at any given time. 
If the Lance complex ended up with a total number of 8,500 objects, as historians have estimated, that means that it would essentially only have been a little over 2% as large as the Louvre today. What this breaks down to is that Hitler's hope of creating the grandest museum in the world wasn't even remotely close to rivaling its geographic neighbors. Not even a little bit. What's more is that in terms of an overview of Western art, the Führer Museum had some ridiculous holes. Again, using spots as my virtual reference point, he notes that there are major gaps in English, Spanish, and Northern Renaissance art, as well as some significant artists lacking from the Italian Renaissance and Baroque collections. Okay, okay, I can guess what some of you may be grumbling, because this is me playing a big game of what-if based on incongruous things. The reality of the works being earmarked for the Lands Museum if the Axis powers won and had gained even more works of art. I'm probably also comparing apples to oranges when it comes to the number of works currently in the Louvre versus what they were nearly 100 years ago, though surely it is somewhat comparable. Regardless, the bottom line is that Hitler's dream for the Führer Museum may have been really big, but the reality certainly couldn't have matched up to it. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes, which documents one very specific instance of Nazi art looting in the former Soviet Union and attempts to answer a question about one of the most famous artwork disappearances of all time. Subscribe now and don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Research assistance is by Stephanie Pryor and social media help by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. So please see our website for further details to support us. You can also go there for images, information, and links to our previous episodes on artcuriouspodcast.com. You can contact us via the website or email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at artcuriouspod. And remember to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Please check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history of the World War II era.